like to tell you about my friends at thecustomplate.com. They will deliver to your door. They post their menu every Friday and deliver twice weekly. We've been in Seattle. They've been in Seattle for the past five years. They own their own commercial kitchen and are here to help. So this is great, especially given everything that's going on, people being trapped at home, people can't go to work. Go check out their food at instagram.com slash chef. You can also email them dean at the custom plate chef or call them at 206-478-4399. Text is preferable. Make sure you tell Dean, Ari says, hi, that's the custom for custom meals fresh to your door. like to tell you about my friends over at Queen Anne Frame and Gift, and they would love to see you down there now that you're at home with a whole list of honeydews. Don't you have a bunch of stuff sitting around the house that your significant other has been bothering you to get framed and taken care of? Head on down to Queen Anne Frame and Gift. It's a custom frame and gift boutique. They offer reminder boxes, a way to brighten someone's day or your own. They put together care packages using small business vendors, so it's double pay it forward, especially when everybody's having such a hard time right now. Keep their businesses going it's great to help them out get some stuff done off your list they are offering custom framing by appointment and would love to help people frame the items that bring them joy right now the business is family owned and is in the queen anne neighborhood of seattle go check them out at queen anne frame and gifts Remember that if you are a business owner and can use a little bit of extra help with everything that's going on right now with the economy and everybody's business is being shut down, please reach out to me, send me a 30-second script, and I'm more than happy to talk about your store or product. Just send it on over to me. I'm a pretty easy guy to get a hold of. I'd be more than happy to talk about your show on the air. Your show. <laughs> I'm the one with the show. Your product on the air. More than happy to talk about it. So please send it over to me. More than happy to help you out. Least I could do that my companies aren't running right now. So let me help you out. More than happy to give you a little mention on air. We'll all get through this together. And now, Canary in a Coal Mine Podcast. Welcome to the Canary and a Coal Mine Podcast. I'm your host, Ari Hoffman. It's good to be back in my office. Haven't been here in a bunch of days because a member of my family was worried they had the coronavirus. So they went for the testing. It took five days to get the test back. That's five days of being in the house, unable to go anywhere, taking care of everything. And the cherry on top of all that is because I'm an observant Jew, the Sabbath was during that. That's 25 hours of no electronics, which means I had to be the sole source of entertainment for my kids, which is good and fun. It's nice to bond with the children. But at some point, I was teaching them casino games because I was really running out of things to do. We had a whole Nerf battle in the house. We turned our dining room table into a ping pong table. I mean, I was really going through the dad bag of tricks to pull all this off. But thank God, everybody's okay. Nobody has the coronavirus in my house and my family. So, But we did everything right. But of course, once we find out that we're sprung from our own quarantine, we find out that our entire state is locked down. In a broadcast last night, Monday evening, Governor Jay Inslee issued a stay-at-home order for Washington state. The governor did not state an end date for the order, but multiple times stated that the order would be in effect for a minimum 
of two weeks. Now, everybody's running off this saying, oh, it's only going to be two weeks. It's only going to be 14 days. That is not what he said. And he left it very open and went on to explain in other forms of media that it might be longer. Inslee stated that it's time to hunker down. That's a direct quote. The order will close many businesses and public places as well as forbid weddings and funerals, expanding the event ban that is already in place in Washington state. Though the governor acknowledged the hardships on local businesses, specifically referencing restaurants and bars that he mandated shut down last week, he once again did not offer any plans or proposals to mitigate the effect on businesses or their employees. Inslee did, however, quote poetry, Walt Whitman, I believe, and hoped that we will um, be able to toast the end of the virus, all Washingtonians at our favorite bar restaurant when it is over. Sorry, that's my Inslee. It's getting a little bit better. You tell me what you think about it. Inslee did not offer concrete plans for how to offset the mounting losses on businesses in the area, which may not be around to serve those toasts. The ban takes effect in 48 hours on Wednesday evening, the 25th, though I hear that that ban may have been pushed back to retroactively in effect now. I guess I'm operating an illegal, non-essential business right here in my office. The order is effective immediately on gatherings, both public and private, social, spiritual, and recreational. When they say spiritual, are there any constitutional law professors out there who could tell me if this is a violation of any amendments regarding established religion? I mean, there's a whole bunch of constitutional issues going on right now, and I understand that in terms of crisis, you may have to do what you need to do to get through this. But is anybody else concerned about this? I know I am. And that's probably also why all the gun stores are sold out and why some municipalities are ordering them being shut down. Yes, that has Total makes total sense and has a lot to do with the coronavirus. Let's shut down all the gun shops. I know that the place I go has a big sign banning before all this went into effect, has a big sign on the door saying that it was Dow Constantine, King County executive, who shut down the ranges, even though there's no reason to do so. Anybody who's been to a gun range, you have these walls on the side. There's plenty of social distancing. You're not going near anybody because people are carrying weapons. It's exercising safety. So there's really no reason to shut those down. So I wonder if people, like I spoke about last week, are just trying to push their agenda through, never letting a good crisis go to waste. Back to the topic at hand. The order will not affect businesses deemed essential. Now, does anybody else think of the scene in Schindler's List where they're talking about essential workers every time they say essential workers? I mean, as a Jew, that's just the first thing it triggers in me. Anyway, essential services deemed as grocery stores, gas stations, banks, healthcare, childcare services, but those businesses are required to ensure social distancing. They did add another one. Pot shops apparently are still able to be open because we cannot live without pot. Now, I will say I'm very happy. I know some pot store owners. I'm related to some pot store owners. I'm very thankful that they will not have to deal with what the rest of us are dealing with right now. And that's one less industry that may be burdened by hardships during all this. So as much as I'm making fun of the pot shops still being open because we know the governor thinks that Washington has the best weed, um, I... I'm very happy for those business owners. I really, really am because it's less time they'll have to recover from all this. Hopefully they can do bang out business because they're the only ones open right now. But I'm happy for them, even though it sucks for the rest of us. Um, restaurants can continue to offer takeout and delivery services. That's some good news, even though they're struggling and their utility bills are still high because they still have to keep the ovens going. That costs a lot, a lot of money. 
The order comes as social media was filled the past week with people out and about enjoying the beaches and parks in Washington. Some even filled to capacity. I know. I rode my bike around the Seward Park Loop, and I took my son down there. There's nothing else to do, so we did that, and there were people everywhere. It usually isn't that busy unless it's Seafair, which is a big, well-known Seattle festival. That's the last time I saw it that packed. I mean, you had to dodge people on the trails. Everybody was out. The beaches were packed. They weren't in the water. I don't know what they were doing, but they were out there. Public officials in Washington, as well as members of the media, spent last week encouraging Washingtonians to stay indoors to avoid a stay-at-home shelter shelter-in-place order. The governor did specify that the order did not mean people could not go outside and proceed to encourage citizens to go for walks, bike rides, and other physical activities. The governor has still not shut down mass transit. Opponents of doing so question how essential workers, first responders, doctors, nurses, will get to jobs, and proponents cite concerns of spreading the virus through the transit system. For example, they bought, King County bought a hotel in Kent. They did not run this by anybody in Kent, not the mayor of Kent, anything as a quarantine area. The first person they put in this quarantine was a homeless guy who, while they were testing him, decided to get up and leave the facility, steal from a 7-Eleven across the street, hop on a bus and leave. Imagine how much of the virus he could have spread had he touched it, tested positive. Right now in New York, one of the cases I know about in New York, the guy rode the train to Grand Central Station. I mean, there's no way of controlling it once that happens. New York's dealing with a huge outbreak of the virus right now. So why are we not dealing with mass transit? Those of you who are concerned about how essential workers get to work, I get that. You know this thing that we have called VIA, that thing which is kind of like Uber, but for some reason the city didn't want to use Uber or Lyft. So what they did was they created their own and are now subsidizing it so that you can get from your house to the train covering that thing they call first mile, last mile transit. Now, I don't have a problem with that, but why don't they use existing companies? And why aren't we using services like that, or at least vans, which are smaller, and easier to clean instead of sending out these massive buses that are completely empty. Now, yes, a lot of them are eco-friendly, but they're still using energy we wouldn't have had to use otherwise. So why are we doing it? It makes no sense to me whatsoever. Why aren't we shutting down mass transit if it is that big of a crisis? Inslee did not discuss how this order would affect the 11,000 plus people sleeping on the streets of Seattle or the thousands of others sleeping in other counties across Washington. They have been specifically cited as susceptible to contracting and spreading the disease because they don't have access to hand washing or showering stations and they live on the street. There's feces everywhere. We talk about all the time how you can literally walk down the street and accidentally step in a pile of human feces. I had to deal with it out at the Jewish cemeteries. I was trying to get cleaned up. You think that doesn't spread the virus more? And now these people are out on the streets. Without, I'm looking out my window. There is a tent encampment outside my window right now that has gotten bigger in the five days I haven't been at the office. There was one tent. I'm now seeing two structures and two more tents. Nobody's dealing with it. And of course, the city shut down the NAV team, which is supposed to be helping these people out. So they're letting these people contract the virus and possibly die out on the street. Well done, politicians. You're doing a bang-up job. Here's something else. Most government employees are still reporting to work every day. I know that people who work for government officials are still doing it. There was no discussion of government workers being furloughed, even though businesses had been required to close. Why is it a double standard? Why are businesses required to close and not the government? Why? I understand the government people who are dealing with this, but I don't think that parking enforcement officers need to be out on the street giving tickets while all this is going on. Really, guys? Washington now joins California, Indiana, St. Louis, Philadelphia, 
as well as communities in New York, New Jersey, Delaware, Massachusetts, and others with a shelter-at-home, stay-in-place order. People need, will need to stay at home unless absolutely necessary, said Inslee. The governor also discharged, or sorry, discouraged the hoarding of supplies and for people to only buy what they need to make sure healthcare workers, seniors, and people who are ill have access to necessities. That makes good sense. I understand that. I understand that the governor's in a tough spot and you can't think of anything, but when you have all of your staff coming to work, you should be able to think about the holes, like what are you going to do about business afterwards? Here's the problem. Let me explain this for everybody who is demonizing business out there. They employ everyone. If those people don't have money, they can't spend it. If they can't spend it, we don't have an economy that you can tax. If they're not making money, you can't tax that. What do you think is going to happen then to all the big plans government has, all the pet projects, all the pork projects? It will be gone. Here's something else to think about. Right now, they're offering all these loans for business owners like myself to take out. The problem with loans is you have to pay them back, usually with interest, whether it's low interest, whatever, you still have to pay it back. So that's money we're not putting back into the economy. We're only paying back the banks because we were forced into this position. It's equivalent of the government driving a truck through my house or somebody, my neighbor, driving a truck through my living room and then refusing to pay for it. So I got to take out loans, do whatever I got to do to make sure this works afterwards. I don't have the money to do it. I don't. I don't know how businesses are going to survive this because this ate into all my profits already from last year. And this has just been, what, two, three weeks now? How much worse is this going to get if this goes all the way through April? It will decimate the event rental industry, the cruise industry, the travel industry, so many other industries. What's going to happen to all those workers? They're going to spend, these companies are going to spend all their time paying back those loans rather than funneling that money back into the economy. So people think, okay, magically the economy is going to turn back on. Yay, the stock market had a big day. Awesome. But that's not going to solve the underlying problem of a lot of people are going to be out of work after this, and a lot of companies are going to be closed after this unless something significant is done. Anybody who tells you otherwise does not know what the hell they are talking about or understand the economics in any way, shape, or form. Don't say I didn't warn you. Remember, if you like the podcast, you can subscribe. You can share it. Share it with all your friends. Tell them how awesome I am. Also, we're doing something special today where I am advertising businesses that need your help. That will be in our commercial segment. If you have a business that you want some free advertising for, message it over to me through anchored.fm or through my Facebook pages or through Twitter or anywhere else. I'm a very easy guy to get a hold of, so find it that way. Coming up, we're going to have an interview with Ann Davidson-Sattler, who is running for Lieutenant Governor of Washington State. Also, we're going to have our Hidden Gems category. We'll be back after this word from our sponsors. So I am here with Ann Davidson-Sattler, who is running for Lieutenant Governor of Washington State. Ann ran in the city council race like I did this year and was not successful. But then, Ann, you did something interesting. Most candidates, like me, said, I needed an absolute vacation from all this. I want nothing to do with this. I am done. Yet you said, hey, I'm going to go back in the field and start knocking on doors again. What inspired you to do it again so quickly? Uh, nothing new inspired me. It just was not time to quit and go to the sidelines. And really, for me, I felt like it was the best time to use the notoriety that I built up from last year. Why put it on a shelf and wait two to four years and unpack it when the issues are still the same? There's still a lack of adequate response to the same issues that made me run in 2019. And I feel like I'm still in campaign mode anyway. Like, let's just keep going. There's, there's no reason to stop. 
So what are those issues that were so important to you that you felt you had to continue fighting for after the election was over in this new role of running for lieutenant governor? They are still the same critical issues. I have new ones that are specific to the lieutenant governor's position, but the ones that made me run last year are still paramount within our state. Homelessness, public safety, and addiction pre prevention and recovery. I feel like those are still not being adequately addressed at any level within our state government, uh, clearly still within the city of Seattle. We are looking at it now, even in the time dealing with COVID-19, that we have people living alongside our streets. Uh, and we know that that's not good. They're all telling us to just wash our hands. Where are they doing that, right? Right. So most people are saying that they have no idea what the lieutenant governor does. So, for example, two questions. What does the lieutenant governor do? And why didn't you pick something like running for governor? Let's say something that's more well-known or mayor, perhaps. Well, so I, the reason this position is uh, really interesting for me is that the foremost job of it is to preside over our Washington State Senate. And that's a, a group of our leaders that are legislature that is elected across the state. And to me, that means that that is a place where all of the ideas from across our state come together. And we, at that place, we form the best approaches to the problems that our state is, is facing. And that also means to me that there's never gonna be one location or one ideology that's gonna always have the right answer or the right approach all the time. And it is a place of compromise. And that's where we're gonna be really making sure that we have the best approaches. So in that role, I see it as, uh, and using my background as an attorney, where I prefer to be in arbitration and mediation instead of litigation, I wanna make sure that we are at a place we are, we are bringing things together and finding the right way to move forward. And that means a balanced, pragmatic, sensible approach. I stopped using the term common sense because common means there's a mutual understanding of things. It's sensible. Um, and that's what I feel like we need to do where people really do feel like their, their voice is heard. And you do that by showing that you take into account what their approach is and incorporating it into the other approach. And we saw that with a comprehensive sexual health education bill where we had 200 amendments proposed by Republican Party, and they were all shut, shut down by the party in power. That means there was no compromise, right? And that's, a, that's a bullying, and that is not what we wanna do at any level of government. We have to see compromise, that's the only way forward, and, and that's the place to do it. So I felt like that was a great role. And how do you think you're going to be able to bridge the divide that seems to exist when they shoot down all those amendments to something like the sexual education bill that seem like pretty common sense or sensible ideas to use your language. Um, yeah. How do you think you're going to be able to bridge that? What solutions do you bring to the table that you think could go across the aisle? Well, being an outsider to politics, I think, is a, a great benefit in this in this way. Uh, I'm not here to play the, the party game um, and was in last year like you in the nonpartisan race. And in my race, it was made to be partisan um, and by the incumbent and her people that had her cohorts who had been with her um, at her previous campaign. So it's, um, it's clear that the way we do it is by our actions and by, uh, by our words. I mean, with my kids, we talk about wearing matching shoes. So if someone's saying one thing and doing another, they're wearing a flip-flop and a soccer cleat. And that tells you the level that you should trust information to them. And we need to be presenting and doing the same things that we're saying and doing in similar language. So matching shoes, I'm going to be wearing, you know, both pairs of Birkenstocks, right? Or whatever it is, I'm going to have on the same, same pair of shoes. So that when I go to one side of the aisle, 
I want to hear from them why they think their approach is really the way to do it with the, with a problem that we're facing. And the same thing from the right. You have to be able to listen to both. Uh, and, I, and I do feel like with my legal background, that is what I uh, am best trained for and what I enjoy the most in that, in that field of work. And I think that it's possible, particularly with my walk away, um, because I did have to say that I was a moderate Democrat because they forced that uh, issue in my race last year. Um, and I've just decided that that power right now, that single one party approach is not working and they're closing people out and not willing to listen to others. And I don't want to be a part of that right now. That's an excellent analogy, the matching shoes thing. I got kids, so I'm definitely stealing yeah. that. I will quote you on it though. Um, with yes. regards, you, know, you wrote a, a great op-ed for um, Switch Washington about your switch from the party, or shift Washington rather, about your switch from the Democrat Party to the Republican Party. A couple loaded questions here, but do you think that's going to hurt you in a primarily blue state, or do you think people are going to respect you more for being upfront about it? And do you think that the Democrat Party still exists as we know it, because from my perspective, it seems more like a socialist party. I mean, Geraldine Ferraro was at my bar mitzvah, and I was treated like I was the most conservative Republican in the world. I do think it's very different from when I moved to Seattle 23 years ago. I moved here uh, from Washington, D.C., and uh, I had worked on Capitol Hill, so I, I had learned early on I was not interested in politics. I, I was there to get involved with non-governmental organizations and to get overseas and work with refugees. That's why I was working in DC and trying to get connections there. And I learned pretty quickly, uh, that's not what I wanted to be doing. So I moved, moved out here when I got involved with professional sports, worked with the Sonics. And so when I came out here, I, I knew, having grown up in Texas, I was a moderate Democrat because in Texas, I was liberal, right? And so I thought, I, I must not be Republican uh, like so many around me, and I'm probably a Democrat. I think that the party has moved so far left, like you said, here. And they have continued to go left, left, left. And not only are they going left, but they are saying you cannot be a part of us unless you follow along step by step. And, and to me, that's not the inclusive party that they wanted to be, that they like to tout that they are. Um, that is the opposite of that. And so if you cannot come to the table with varying different views on an issue, I don't see why that's calling something inclusionary. So um, I, I think that being an outsider to politics, it's gonna be a benefit because uh, I went to where I thought I would be the most welcome. And in fact, I wasn't. And that was my personal experience with the establishment, right? I'm not talking about voters. At the doors, I had voters that were very, very welcoming and very thankful for what I was saying. And would say to them, they would say, I am so liberal, but I am so fed up with what we are facing here in Seattle. And they were thankful for the, how I was talking about approaching these problems. And then the very next door would be someone who would say, oh, I'm very, I'm, I'm conservative. I only vote for Republicans. And I said, you know, I'm probably the closest thing you're going to get because of what I think is the right approach for the problems that we have. So I think that it's going to be a benefit. Um, and it really is just me. Um, and so I, I'm not looking at what's going to make people like me or what's going to make people not like me. I really am just a, a concerned mom and cannot sit on the sidelines anymore. And, and that's, that's really the truth. To your credit, the way you and I met was I was dealing with the homeless problem out at the Jewish cemeteries, and you called me out of the blue 
I'd never heard of you before in my life, never met you before. You weren't running for office at the time. You said, how can I help you out? I'm an attorney. Can we do something maybe to solve this? So that's the kind of person you are. You knocked on more doors than anybody else in the campaign. You seem to enjoy it. Most candidates don't really want to be out there knocking on doors. You seem to love it. Um, with regards to the homeless issue, especially now, we're doing this via video conference because of the shutdown order. Um, it doesn't seem that anybody's dealing with the homeless problem out on the streets. And in my mind, this would be a prime time to go deal with it because they're the only ones out there. What approaches would you take to dealing with the homeless situation, especially right now under such extraordinary conditions? It is critical. Um, and and it was, it's been critical for five to eight years, right? Like we've had this going on in Seattle, completely unattended, um, letting it become, you know, the catchphrase of the new normal, right? My kids are now nine and 11 and they have no memory of Seattle without seeing people living uh, in whatever form of shelter they can create for themselves along our roadways. Um, and that should be absolutely abhorrent and unacceptable to anyone that that is what children are growing up seeing and experiencing the, here in America. And that should not be okay. So I came out with an approach that we should treat it like a disaster because we've declared that state of emergency on homelessness at, at the city of Seattle, at the county level. And only now do we hear our governor talking about homelessness because it's polling is the number one issue across the state. And every municipality across the state says, we don't wanna be Seattle, we don't wanna be Seattle. Uh, and I agree, right? We cannot let Washington state policies become Seattle policies. And there is a pipeline, a direct pipeline from Seattle the ones who are in power to Olympia. And we cannot let that happen because this is what they will do. They will just leave people uh, to fend for themselves. And that is not caring and compassionate. When I worked in a refugee camp along the border of Cambodia where people were fleeing civil war, it was more hygienic in a UN refugee camp than we have people living alongside the roads here in Seattle, Washington. That should not be okay to either party independence, anybody, um, and the children that are experiencing it, and even the ones that are just witnessing it, it is causing irreparable damage. So really what my approach, I think, is still what I said last year, we have vacant commercial spaces that are completely unused. We have, those can be repurposed, where they provide shelter from the elements, we can bring in uh, toilets, we can bring in hand sanitizing places to wash hands, showers, places where people have individual shelters inside the commercial space. So it creates privacy, it creates the social distancing amount that we need. All of that can be there so that they don't get exposed to COVID-19, right? That they don't get that disease. It's critical that we have a way to bring people in from outside. And those are ways that we can do it. Uh, it could have been also, uh, if we didn't use one of those spaces, for that, it could have been used for the field hospital they're setting up in Shoreline, where they're having to build it from scratch. We could have been putting it into an existing space. Why aren't we using the Washington State Convention Center? Why is that not being repurposed for a field hospital, right? We're just building it from scratch. Well, we have a building that's sitting vacant. Why aren't we using it, right? It could be used for, for one of the field hospitals temporarily. There's no reason to be doing to the expense that we're doing now uh, when we have places that are available. So I think for homeless, we need to get them where they can have hygiene access. And that means repurpose some of the vacant commercial space and give them some privacy, give them some dignity because they are not having it alongside the streets, for sure. I know that you mentioned these commercial spaces and what I'm worried about is we're gonna have a lot more vacant commercial spaces once this is all over because of the impact to the economy. 
have you given any thought, because I know the governor hasn't right now, about ways to mitigate the effects that all these closures are having on business? I know that one of my businesses is an event rental company. It's half a step away from closing. Are there any ideas, any thoughts you have given to, to ways to mitigate this for business owners? Well, that's where being lieutenant governor is a really key aspect for this, actually, um, because that that in, office has been developed to have a critical role in Washington state trade. And I feel like because we are one of the hardest hit states in the U.S., um, that's going to be a big part of how we work to revive our economy is to make sure that people know what are the products that we are producing here in Washington state. And we are innovative. We are a place of innovation. And that means that we need to be approaching problems that we're facing in an innovative and new way. We have people that are creating green energy here in Seattle, and we need to be broadcasting that, right? We, we have people that are working tirelessly on issues that affect our climate, that will create energy for us, that are also gonna be great factors for our economy to come back to life. And I think that's a great location for me to be in to talk about that. That means that we can talk about it with uh, other states, we can talk about it uh, with foreign um, relations and build upon our economy that way to make sure that we can come back stronger. You mentioned bad policy spreading, and to me, without you know putting too fine a point on it, they seem more contagious than certain vi viruses we're dealing with here, especially in Washington state. It just seems that people seem to want to keep replicating these bad, bad policies and not do things that make more common sense. So for example, right now, a lot of people are concerned because the government shut down, but mass transit is still operating. Perhaps if there was something like VIA, which is already paid for by the city of Seattle, to get emergency workers where they needed to go, and we could shut down the mass transit system as best as we could, because we saw that guy who escaped quarantine in Kent that just hopped on mass transit, and he may have actually been a person who was spreading the virus. We didn't know at the time yet. Do you have any ways that could possibly solve the transportation issue we're having right now and also mitigate the risk to people that are riding the transportation system right now? Is that something you've given some thought to? Because it concerns me that the transit system is still operating even with the closures in place. Um, I haven't honestly given that thought because it, to me, there's with the we've eliminated so much congestion, right? Because we now all are doing things remotely. Uh, we're slowing down our pace. Um, but that's an interesting aspect that I, you know, I'll think about with uh, people that I talk with about policy developments because that it is critical that we keep some part of it running. Uh, but I think opening up parking is one of the big places that they need to be making sure we have available that are it's not costing people, right? That that I think that they are not. Uh, I know there were a lot of garages that were still being charged a high amount, so people were feeling that it was unsafe to ride transit, so they'd have to drive, and it was really expensive. And there are workers that are required to be, you know, hospital staff. Um, so that's a great topic, but I have not thought about that one specifically. I've been focusing on what the slowdown can do for us socially, right? That it's that imposed slowdown and how that can benefit families, uh, how that can benefit a, a different type of development for, for businesses. Um, and that's kind of been the main part I've been focused on. See, that's one thing I always love about you is that you always hear the ideas of constituents and you shape your policies based on the feedback you get. And I think that's just a phenomenal thing about you. So many politicians just say, nope, this is my idea and here's what I'm doing and they stick to it. You craft them based on the feedback you get and make them more specific that way. Is there anything you can think of that you changed your vision on during the city council race that you thought for sure it was this way, but then in talking to people and discussing it more, you found a better way to do it based on the feedback? 
I'm not sure if I found one that was a better way, but I had some like that that I hadn't thought about necessarily. Um, and, but that through the campaign, it really listening to people, they influenced you know, how I looked at those issues, particularly like our trees, right? Where, where our city uh, did not have an updated ordinance about trees and the impact that they play on development uh, and what you know, we're talking about, we're in a housing crisis, uh, but then we're also wanting to talk about our climate and how much trees can absorb in the carbon. Um, and so we came out with a, a small way that we could divert the current, don't add new gas tax, but part of the current gas tax, 0.02 cents, we could use and plant 10 trees with that. And it literally would offset the carbon emissions as we use it, planting as we use and we'd at least be neutral. And that is some things that came about through the campaign that I maybe hadn't necessarily sat down and thought about it because it wasn't my forefront issues. My forefront issues were things that I was being asked on a daily basis by my young kids for years, every day, everywhere we went. Why is that person there? How did they get there? Why are we leaving that person there, right? Like having to explain them in child appropriate language, developmentally appropriate answers, uh, those were the issues that I was focused on um, and, and drove me there. So then there were issues like what you're saying that are uh, things that maybe I hadn't had a great uh, response that I would want to follow on that. And of course you get the, the ideas and the input from people you talk to. I don't want anyone in charge who thinks they know everything, right? <laughs> I'm a, and I, that's just not who I want, right? I want someone who really can connect the ideas together and because that is really the best way we will get to where we are better as a society, right? And that's gonna be helping individuals and collectively for our best interest if we take the, the approach from everybody and bring them together. One of the most important things I believe in a leader is knowing what you don't know and knowing when yeah. to ask for help. And I think that echoes that point. So getting back to the homeless situation for a second, 80% um, of the people in navigation team encounters, they say, according to their numbers, have a substance abuse problem. What would be your way of dealing with that? Because it seems that everybody wants to look in a different direction and say, no, this is a housing affordability crisis, rather than deal with the facts on the ground, which it seems to be a substance abuse, drug, opioid crisis. Yeah, and I agree with you about that, that it is a, um, it is a breakdown socially of relationships, really, is, and that people have now turned to substance for a variety of reasons, but they lack support elsewhere that now a substance uh, is coping, is a way for them to cope. And we need to rebuild that for people. We need to not be in denial about it, right? That's the first step of, of all of it, right? And you go through the stages of grief. The first stage of grief, you know, is denial. And I think that we have a lot of people who are still in denial that this is really entrenched within American society, is substance abuse uh, disorders. And so we need to come to terms with that. And that means that you cannot veil it as a housing crisis or any other type of crisis. We need to talk about it, what it is, so that we can create and craft an approach that addresses the problem that it is. Um, and so in none of those approaches do we wanna shame someone, right? And that's what I feel like is being done. Because if you're saying you don't wanna have a, an encampment outside your home, like a, a, I went to a, a renter's house that they were renting that had lived there for years, a gentleman who takes care of his disabled uh, and deaf uh, sister. They, they live there in this rental house and literally right beside the bushes on the side of their house was a huge encampment right along the entrance to I-5, massive uh, encampment. And I went there the day that they, the NAV team came to clean that up. 
Um, and I think, wow, they're paying rent in this house um, and they've lived there for a while. And, but right outside the door is drug deals and people using drugs and sleeping right there where she, they feel unsafe, right? So we have to make sure that we are not allowing that to occur because the people that are um, nearby deserve to have that protection as well. So I feel like it's a, a critical piece that we have. We have the counseling there. We need to make sure that the nuclear family is strong. I think that's what I'm focusing on with this time we have, uh, that we are required to be home. It was rebuilding some of those family units. It doesn't mean that everyone's family is safe. We need to make sure, like this is one of the things that are, I may be digressing for you, but it's one of the forefront issues that I'm wanting to think about right now is uh, domestic violence victims. Um, and so as we are required to be at home, there are some people that are not safe at home. And um, we need to make sure that those people have access to safety plans and to safety. So I totally digress for you, but I agree with you. It is substance, it is an overlap with mental health. It is a breakdown at the state level of policy for funding for mental health facilities and counselors uh, and making sure we have drug treatment. But we gotta get people, not injection sites, right? We wanna get people into treatment. That is the goal, is sobriety and treatment. That's a great point you bring up. Um, I, I just the first time it occurred to me was thinking about people who aren't safe in their own homes because of domestic violence. You think about the human trafficking factor. Washington State, I believe the last count was 13th in the nation, 16th in the nation in terms of human trafficking. And that's being done in these encampments as well. And nobody's paying any attention to that. That's actually really encouraging to hear from you and discouraging at the same time that nobody's giving any consideration to what the stay-at-home order is. Do you know of anybody who's mitigating the consequences of people who may be trapped in a dangerous environment, domestic environment? No, I've not heard anyone talking about it. That's why I'm really uh, concerned about it. I'm, and we're going to put out a lot of phone numbers that we are making sure are still in wor working right now. So if people are in crisis for that situation, they can call um, because they need to have a safety plan. But now their safety plan may need to be you know, re re revamped because of the current situation. Um, but it is a it's a concern to me. I also am making a personal effort to check on individuals, regardless of age, that I know live alone, right? Because the isolation is now gonna play a big toll on people mentally. Um, mental health is gonna be a critical factor piece that we need to be focusing on. Um, and, and so these are, I know we are talking to a lot of people about businesses and small businesses, and those are huge because they impact our mental health well-being as well. But focusing on groups that are, uh, not necessarily where they would want to be having to stay at home is a piece I don't hear anyone talking about. So um, that has been at the forefront of my mind because it's often women and children. Uh, and so uh, women and their children are having to find safe places to stay. Um, and because as we probably all know, like, you know, I'm having to homeschool, right? And try to campaign like, and, and you know, so our patients level uh, is thin. And so when you've got all of that combined together, it's combustible. Um, and so we need to make sure that we have a, a way to, to reach those people and that they have a place to go for safety. How and again, yeah. repurposing commercial space might be a way to provide a safe place for them. That's right? a great idea. It's a great, great idea. Um, how much sway does the Lieutenant Governor have over the school superintendent, for example, so that when the Seattle schools say that they're not, or the public schools say that they're not offering homeschooling, um, what can the lieutenant governor do to fix something like that? Because all these parents were desperate until the government, I mean, until the school board started backtracking on that. So what could the lieutenant governor do to put pressure to make sure that these students are taken care of for the eight weeks or more they right. might be out of school? 
That's a great question. And you know, there, even though there are gonna be areas that the Lieutenant Governor does not have hands-on policy uh, influence, what it does provide is me as a mom of elementary age kids in, I do call it sometimes the belly of the beast in Seattle, right? Of this, I'm living it, right? And so having a statewide voice about it, it, it at least I can be the mouthpiece of questions, relentless questions. Where is this coming from? Why do we not have this? This is what we need. And so to be able to have that voice at the state level, to speak for families that feel unheard, that feel unrepresented because of the one party rule we've had for so long, uh, it, I feel like it's, that is a huge value to have. And again, even if it's not hands-on policy, it is still influence because it is a voice that is across the state for those that feel unheard, unrepresented, um, and, and that their elected officials are out of touch. Okay. Well, and if people want to find out more about you, how do they find out about you? What's the best way to get a hold of you? Well, if you were with me last year, it's still the same. That's why it was so terrific, right? The infrastructure was already there and it made it really nice. Um, so it's Neighbors for Anne, and I have always wanted to have an E, but I don't. I wanted to buy a vowel for forever, but I never got on Wheel of Fortune. So it's A-N-N. Uh, Neighborsforanne.com is the website, and every social media is Neighbors for Anne. And we'd love to hear you. We really want to make sure all, like, as you know, in the city of Seattle, all of our seven districts, the split was basically 60-40. And all those 40% people across the city of Seattle are feeling unrepresented, unheard, and do not see that we will have a change of approach anytime soon. Uh, and so the change of approach can happen at a state level. The change of approach can be having a louder voice than even within the city of Seattle. And that is critical. That's why it was time to keep going and why I, I chose this seat to, because it, it's now. Now is the time to keep going about it. Uh, so we would welcome anyone across the city of Seattle uh, who wants to participate because it is critical to Seattle as well. This is the message we were all saying last year and is keeping that message front and center because it's not improving and it's certainly now gonna have even more dire consequences uh, after coronavirus. Well, there you have it. That's Ann Davidson Sattler, who is phenomenal and my pick for Lieutenant Governor. So make sure you check her out at Neighbors for Ann. Ann, thank you so much. Stay healthy, stay safe, stay sane with the kids home all the time. And yes. I hope we all come out the other side on this and uh, are able to recover not just health-wise, but with the economy and everything else that goes with it. And best of luck with your campaign. Ari, it's so good to talk to you. I am so glad I wrote you that day, however many years ago, because it has been really terrific to, to know you. So thank you for your support. Awesome. Thanks so much, Ann. Appreciate it. Okay. Welcome back to the Canary and Coal Mine Podcast. Remember, if you like the podcast, to subscribe, to share, to rate it, tell everybody how awesome it is, advertise with us. We'd love to have it. I will be happy to mention whatever product that is, even if I don't use it, so that I can talk to more people, so I can spread more of the messaging that we do here on the show. Be awesome. So friends of mine were talking about binge watching. I could tell you about all these new shows I've been watching, but haven't finished a lot of them, haven't gone through them. But what I am going to do instead, somebody challenged me. Can you list all the Marvel movies 
over 20 of them, in chronological order. So I did one better. Not only did I list all the Marvel movies in chronological order, but I told you which ones you could avoid, which ones you could skip parts of, which ones you can only watch the after credit scenes for. This is very hard to do off the top of your head without some assistance from the internet, just keeping them all straight in your head. Anyway, this is my take of all the Marvel movies from the Marvel comic universe, as it's called, not the old ones. We're not talking about like Fantastic Four or the original Spider-Man movies or the awful Captain America movie that was made in the 1990s that didn't even make it to theaters. Nope. We're talking about the ones you know about, with the characters you know about, all the ones that have been released in the last 10 years. So if you want to watch them chronologically, this is how you do it. First is Captain America, the first Avenger. It takes place during World War II. Great movie. Next comes Captain Marvel. It takes place in 1995. My opinion was, eh. My wife and daughter loved it. I think they made her so powerful that there's no suspense in her story. You know she's going to be fine. I think that's a problem with her in general, and that factors in later on with Endgame. All you really need is the after credit scene, but the 90s nostalgia in Captain Marvel is awesome. Um, Iron Man takes place in 2010. My favorite, the first Marvel movie of the Marvel Comics universe that is actually made, has the after credit scene about the Avengers. That starts off. Iron Man 2 comes right after it. I think it's underrated. It just kind of feels like a continuation of number one. It's nothing special. The Incredible Hulk. <clears throat> you can skip this movie. Not needed at all. The only reason is even on this list is there's an after credit scene, which ties into the Avengers. Thor. In my opinion, the Thor movies are Thorable. I feel like I'm watching a video game. I like when they're on Earth. I hate everything on Asgard. I hate these movies. I hate the Thor movies, with one exception, which we'll get to. Next comes The Avengers. It takes place in 2012. It is my happy nerd place, as I'm sure it is for many of you. Next comes Iron Man 3, six months after The Avengers. If Iron Man 1 wasn't my favorite, this one would be. I don't know why people hate on this movie so much. I think it's a lot more complex character-wise than Iron Man 1 was. I love it. I think it's great. Thor The Dark World. More Thorable. What an absolute piece of garbage. I... No. I mean, I like that Zachary Levi is in it, replacing an actor in one of the other characters that nobody remembers his name, but what a piece of dreck. Just terrible. Next comes Captain America, The Winter Soldier. Amazing. I love it. One of the absolute best Marvel movies. It's a good movie. It's a suspense thriller. Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., the TV show, which is god-awful, got good when they actually started referencing this, and then when they forgot about it, they went back to being lousy. Next comes Guardians of the Galaxy. This is an unpopular opinion I have. It's funny, with a good soundtrack, it's a terrible movie. I know I'm in the minority of that, but that's my opinion. Great soundtrack, funny, terrible movie. Then comes Guardians of the Galaxy 2, which I believe is completely unwatchable, complete piece of dreck, with the exception of Baby Groot and Kurt Russell, who's always awesome. Feel free to completely skip Guardians of the Galaxy 2. Not relevant to anything. You'll wonder why there's a couple new people on the spaceship and then not really care. Avengers Age of Ultron. Eh, nothing special. Marvel just taking my money because they know they can. Then comes Ant-Man. Clever, cute, funny that they managed to not take themselves seriously, which made it a better movie. Nothing special. Captain America Civil War. Excellent on so many levels. I thought it was great. The one thing is you'll have to junk what you know about the comic book. But just know I thought it was really awesome. It's like another Avengers movie. Spider-Man Homecoming. 
I liked it. Some people don't because Iron Man is all over the place. So now you know why I like it because Iron Man's my favorite character. I am kind of tired of rebooting Spider-Man. He is good. I'm in the minority of liking Andrew Garfield. I thought that Tom Holland did a great job in this. Personally, I only like Tobey Maguire's number two, which is Spider-Man 2 with Dr. Octopus. The rest were eh, but made a lot of money because they were the first movies as part of that whole superhero revival. So people went to see them. Doctor Strange, eh, whatever. Not needed at all. Some fun Easter eggs. I like the after credit scene, but boring. Black Panther. Interesting idea and plot. I understand why people love it. I understand why African-Americans think of it as a rallying cry, just as I think of Wonder Woman coming out of that pit, an Israeli actress, you know, and I'm Jewish, and I see her going off to fight everybody in World War I. I'm like, that's awesome. So I understand that this does the same thing for the African-American community, but I believe that the Black Panther character was so much better represented in Civil War than in this movie. I thought a lot of it were just forced. That's how I felt about it. But I understand why other people like it. Thor Ragnarok. Finally, a good Thor movie because they didn't take themselves seriously. The best Hulk appearance since Avengers 1. Avengers Infinity War, good. Don't cry. Everything will be fine at the end. We'll get through this together, just like coronavirus. Ant-Man and the Wasp. Fits in between Infinity War and Endgame. It's cute, whatever. It's nothing special from the first one. You only really need the after credit scene of this movie to understand what's going on. Avengers Endgame <clears throat> starts in 2017. Not going to tell you the rest of it. Climax was everything you have been waiting for in Marvel. Ties up most things nicely. You will have some amazing nerdgasm moments, for lack of a better word. Spider-Man Far From Home happens right after Endgame. Cute, clever dealing with Endgame. I'm bored of high school Peter Parker. I love the cameo after credits, as will you if you're a Spider-Man fan. And if you aren't tired of Marvel after all this, go watch the TV shows on Netflix, Daredevil, Punisher, and Jessica Jones. Skip the other shows. They all suck. Anyway, that's my take on Avengers. You can go watch it chronologically. You can watch it in the order they came out like the rest of us. You can not watch it at all. Your life will be perfectly fine. I do enjoy these movies. My kids love these movies. But it gives you something to do in the five remaining weeks that they're out of school, plus... Who knows, however, longer. Anyway, don't say I didn't warn you. This is a great way to get through the sequester, the shelter in place, the stay in one spot. I don't know what they're calling in different places. Wherever you are, great way to get through it. Anyway, I'm Ari Hoffman. This is Canary in the Coal Mine, and we will see you at the next episode. Stay safe. Stay healthy.